seated as the choir comes down. Let's grab our copy of Scripture. It may take a few moments, so we might want to get started now looking for the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, it's a minor prophet, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Maybe the easiest thing to do is go to Matthew and back up five books. You'll come to Habakkuk. It's a rather obscure book in the Bible. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there are many in this room who have never read it or certainly never heard a sermon preached from the book of Habakkuk, but that's all about to come to a swift end. We're going to look at God's prophet and hear what he has to say. It's on page 1080, by the way, in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's only three chapters long, so you've got to go slow when you get in the minor prophets. They're not minor because their message isn't important. They're just minor because they're uh, short. They're low. They have a small word count. Habakkuk, page 1080. I want you to begin this morning, before we dive into God's Word, I want you to begin by just thinking through some things with me. Uh, it certainly wasn't my intention two weeks ago to be preaching out of the book of Habakkuk this morning, much less doing a, a, a Sunday morning series through this entire book. We're going to spend, today will be the first of about five weeks, we're going to look at this entire book and all that it has to offer us on Sunday mornings. We'll look at the Gospel of Luke tonight, uh, but... It wasn't my intention to be here in Habakkuk. I remembered uh, that while we were, I was in Brazil, uh, Steve asked me, he said, Pastor, have you been thinking about uh, what we're going to do when we finish Luke? And I said, well, you mean like five years from now? And he said, and I said, no, actually, yes, I have been thinking about it. And I've just, God's really been working in my heart in the minor prophets. And I said, we'll probably do a minor prophet. And I told him that, uh, he said, well, which one do you think? And I said, probably Haggai. I said, that, that's probably uh, where we'll go, but we'll just see what God has. And uh, that was sort of where we left it. And then just in these weeks and last week, as God really worked in my heart in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that we talked about last Sunday morning, I just felt so impressed upon my heart that this was God's will for us to study this book, and I, I just commend this to you to say, I believe with all my heart that God has something to say to us as a fellowship, to speak to you as an individual. I pray that you will open your heart and hear what God has to say this morning. It will help you. It will serve you well. It is uh, one of the most uh, relevant and contemporary passages of Scripture in all the Bible. But the entire Bible is relevant and the entire Bible is applicable. And so many times we think of the Bible as this sort of distant uh, manuscript, this old book that is describing things at one time and that we somehow have to figure out how to bring them into today when really this is God's word for all people of all times and all nations and all circumstances. And it is absolutely wonderfully frank and honest and raw and real. And you will definitely see that in the book of Habakkuk. Now, let's just think for a moment about how we've gotten to where we are in the book of Habakkuk. So it's roughly 600 B.C. But to get here, the people of God have uh, sort of, we pick up the story with them oppressed, let's say in the book of Exodus. They're, they're, depre- they're oppressed uh, under the uh, 
the rule of Egypt and they are longing for deliverance. They're longing for freedom. And why do they want freedom? What is their issue? It's not that they're not being fed. It's not that they're not being cared for. It's that they want freedom. They want freedom to worship their God. They don't want to be worshiping other gods. They don't want to be uh, stuck under the oppression of a pagan people. And so God frees them and He delivers them in a miraculous, unbelievable, spectacular way that the world would sort of watch in awe as God took His people through these all of these various steps of obedience and then the conquest, the military conquest of a, of a little unknown people that God used to, to defeat big, strong, powerful nations. And so we follow, we follow along with the people of God. And then finally, you know, we pass through this time of the judges. There's all these ups, there's all these downs. Finally, we get to a time where the people, they want a king. They've sort of established themselves. They're, they're beginning to enjoy some sovereignty as a nation, as a people. So they want a king. They get King Saul. He's a huge disappointment. That doesn't work out real well. Then we move into the time of David. And David, the man after God's own heart, with all of his, uh, with all of his mistakes and all of the blunders and all of the things that happen in the life of David, he is a man who who serves God faithfully and who leads the people of God into this amazing time of stability and peace and, and, and security. And so Solomon inherits this, this wonderful sort of legacy and really takes it to the next level. And the people of God uh, exist in, in freedom and in prosperity and in wealth. And so all of what started with this longing to be uh, free has led all the way up to the time of Solomon, the building of the glorious temple of God and and all that came with that. But what happened? Solomon dies. And immediately the people of God begin to turn their back on him. They begin to go astray. They begin to revert back to their old ways. They invent new pagan ways. The the people of God start suffering. The kingdom of God is split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel doesn't last long. It's wiped out. And then Judah, which is where we are this morning, uh, the southern kingdom, the ten tribes of Judah, they... They just flounder. They flounder with terrible leadership. They flounder with all sorts of idolatry and all sorts of problems. And so there's a, really this, this litany of wicked kings, and there's none more wicked than Manasseh. Manasseh was a king who just built all sorts of horrible, uh, uh, blasphemous altars in the temple. It was terrible what Manasseh did. The Bible describes him as one of the darkest, most wicked leaders who's ever reigned or ever ruled at any time. And he finally dies. His son Amon comes on the scene, doesn't rule very long. He's killed. And then comes Josiah, the boy king at age eight. And he comes along. And about age 16, he begins to walk in the ways of his father, David, who wasn't his father. But what the Bible's telling us is that he begins to study the, the, the lessons learned from David. And he ushers God's people into this unbelievable revival. They begin to purge out all of the wickedness and they finally are, are rebuilding the temple. They find a copy of the book of the law. They're standing reading the book of the law and people just begin to weep and repent. And so just full scale revival breaks out in the time of Josiah. 
Now understand, when Josiah's revival is going on, we suspect Habakkuk was probably a young man. He's probably a young man. He was a young prophet. We don't know if he'd been called by God specifically yet, but we know that he probably uh, saw what was happening and he was able to taste the goodness of revival. But when Josiah died in battle, fighting alongside his men, that was the end of that. His sons were wicked and they turned right around and went right back to the ways of Ammon and Manasseh. And so now we find the perspective of this prophet. Imagine a man who was born as a young man and experienced the revival of Josiah and now is watching as the nation that once worshipped God is just falling apart and running in the other direction and mayhem is afoot. And this is his perspective. This is his word. Look with me. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention. And contentions arises. And Lord, therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. The Lord says, for I will work a work in your day, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that not that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They, they fly as an eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earth in mounds and they seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, now apart from you, we will be unable to comprehend and understand that which you'll have us to see this morning. So Lord, I pray that you'll help me, help us as a people. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might be transformed by your wisdom and your truthfulness towards us, Lord. We receive this as a gift today. We long for it. May we hunger and thirst, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So it begins this prophecy. It's almost like uh, this prophet Habakkuk, whom we don't, we don't know very much about at all. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture. We really don't have a lot of biographical information about Habakkuk. But we do know, we don't know how old he is, but he does seem to be a mature man. He's obviously seen some things. But the, it's as if this is his journal. And as he's been journaling these things, God now commands him to write them out and to, and to, that God's going to preserve this section of, of what Habakkuk has faced in his life for all of us to learn from and to see. So it's described first, this oracle, this burden in verse 1, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Well, we don't know a lot about him. We do know it's 
probably about 630 B.C., but he's someone who is carrying a great burden. He reminds me of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 when he finds out that, that the, the, the land that Nehemiah loves is in disarray and, and it's broken down and Nehemiah begins to weep and cry and mourn for months on end, so much so that the king even asks him, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? That he just couldn't shake the burden. When a prophet gets a word from the Lord, it's a burden. Why is it a burden? It's a burden because it's not a lot of fun to tell people the truth. Especially when you know in advance that people don't want to hear it. And so you carry this burden. And so he's not unlike the other prophets who carry the burden of the things that they see and the things that they hear. So what did he see? Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, The things that he saw, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Now, we can tell from verse 2 that this isn't something new. This isn't brand new. It's not like that Habakkuk just saw this. He's seen the progression of evil that's led him to this point because he says clearly, How long, O Lord? So this is something that's been ongoing. And as he looks around, what he sees is he sees this this sin. He sees the trouble. He sees with his eyes what he knows to be wrong. Now, first of all, I want you to understand some things about what Habakkuk says here. He's not talking about people outside. He's not talking about other nations. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking internally about his people, about his land. And so, for us in, as New Testament believers, we don't, do not need to twist around uh, these scriptures in verses 3 and 4 as if we're talking about the pagan world around us. No, we're talking about God's people. There's trouble. And you know that feeling in your gut when you see trouble and you know it's trouble, yet no one seems to be paying attention to trouble? And there's, there's violence all around you. You pick up the newspaper. You watch the news. I mean, I'm not the only one in this room, certainly, who just has enough. There's just sometimes. In fact, there, for me, there's many times. There's times where, you know, I've, I've had a rough day. And I've dealt with hard situations. And I've had hard conversations with people. And, and it's just wore me down mentally and physically and spiritually. And when I get home, let me tell you what I don't want to do. I don't want to turn on the TV and I certainly don't want to watch the news. I don't want to see it. I can't handle it. It's just too much because I already know what it's going to be. And the last thing I need is more things to upset me and more things to, to just cause me to, you know, have to deal with. I got enough, enough. And I'm sure that many of you would just turn it off. You just had enough. You don't want to, you don't want to hear all about it. You're tired of, of just the, the never-ending litany of, of horrific crimes. And nothing is, is unbelievable anymore. There's no atrocity that can be committed against a child that would shock us. There's no sexual sin that would, that would just bewilder us. There's no, there, there's no murder rate. There's no, it's just nothing. We are so numb to, to the violence that we have seen that nothing really shocks us. Nothing. Nothing. You know, I was thinking about uh, when, when I saw that video that we watched earlier 
uh, the first time I saw it, I just cried like a baby. And I know that some of you cried this morning seeing it. And uh, you can imagine as I'm just right there with it in my face, being able to see it just as clear as I can. And I just began to think about how I'm thinking about Habakkuk and I'm thinking about all this and I'm thinking about how, you know, when you watch the news, when was the last time you saw someone reporting the news who just broke into tears? They were just overwhelmed by what they saw. You don't see that. You know why? Because nothing shocks us. Whatever pops up on that prompter, they just read it. No matter how horrific it is, they just read through it as if it's just another day in America. And you know what? What about the church? I mean, let's be honest. Is there any, is there any news that we could hear today about some pastor who's fallen into some horrible sin, who's, who's, you know, just forsaken his calling, who's thrown his ministry under the bus. I mean, how many times do we have to hear? We're not shocked. I am not shocked by that at all. Not at all. It doesn't shock me. I remember a few years ago when we first began to get the statistics about the the epidemic of pornography in our country. I remember the first study that was done about pornography among evangelical ministers. And I remember the shock and horror that I, as I sat and looked and said, this cannot be right. It cannot be true. It cannot possibly be true that the men of God in our country, that close to half of them, in, in, within 30 days of the poll, the question was in the last 30 days, you've looked at some image that was pornographic. How in the world could that be true? And let me tell you something. That was three or four years ago. Today, nothing shocks me. I'm shocked when a man is faithful for 30 years. Because it's, it's just, it's so rampant. It's so every day. I'm not shocked by the things churches do. I'm not shocked by the, the shallowness of people. I'm not shocked by the ridiculousness of, of the things that the people of God consume themselves with. Because it's just, we're just so overwhelmed with it. I mean, let's be honest. The people of God today are, are so wrapped up in whether or not they have the latest cell phone. They're so wrapped up in what the score of the ball game was. They're so wrapped up. Listen, we, I, have, I listen to all these conversations among Christian people. And, and it's about the economy and it's about jobs and it's about... I'm not saying those aren't important, but is that is that who we've become? Is that our thing? What about the righteousness of God? What about that? What happened to God's economy? What happened to what God has to say? And Habakkuk is, is flustered. He's overwhelmed. He's grieved. He's, he's saying, God, why have you abandoned us? See, I, I know. I know that, that thank God for the Habakkuks in this room who aren't just off you know, lollygagging through life and falling into all the traps of, of, of our time and, and that are truly grieved and are on their face before the Lord and saying, God, what's going on? Have you turned a blind eye to us? Have you, have you forgotten about us? 
You see, it's personal to Habakkuk. He, he is, this is personal. It's personal. This grief that he's facing about the things that he's seeing is very personal to him. It's personal like the, like the, the, the parent in this room who has a child who has a chronic illness. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've sought God's face over and over. The person in this room who's been through treatment after treatment after surgery after surgery. And there comes a point where you say, God, have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten about me? I mean, what's going on here? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you move? Why don't you respond? It's like the man or the woman who's in this chronically sick marriage. And you, you, you find yourself living between these two worlds and you come to church and you act like everything's okay, but you know it's a mess and you want to fix it, but it seems like everything you do, it just makes it worse and you can't get along and you, it's all this anger and all this bitterness and it just goes on and on and on. What goes on in your home would just be horrifying if people on Sunday knew what was going on. And God just seems silent. Or there's the, the Christian couple who, who loves the Lord and, and wants to serve Him. And all they want to do is have a baby. And they, they try and they try and they try and they can't seem to get pregnant. And everyone around them is getting pregnant. And worse than that, you, they look around and they see drug addicts having babies. And they see all these horrific situations and orphans everywhere. And, they, and at some point you say, God, really? Really? This is how this is going to go? You can't just... All I want to do is raise a child for the glory of God. And you can't help me here? And all these people who don't even want kids, just keep having them. People who have kids for the wrong reason and they just get pregnant on demand. And here we are, barren. You see how personal it is? It should be personal for you. There should be some place in your heart where if you're honest, you say to yourself, I've been where Habakkuk is. Or I'm where Habakkuk is. Or I'm heading to where Habakkuk is. But none of us in here are excluded from this experience where our struggles are great. But listen, as we saw last week and as we will see through this study, that our great struggles are great opportunities to grow. But great struggles do not guarantee growth. And that's a very important distinction. It depends on how we respond in the midst of our desperation. It it, it depends on what our framework, our mindset is as we approach God in our situation when He he doesn't seem to hear us. So I'm going to give you some, some possible responses to the difficulties that you face. I think the most common response is to be religious. I think the most common response to a God that doesn't seem to hear, to circumstances you don't understand, to ways that things are going that you can't seem to reconcile, what you do is you just hide the frailty in your heart, you hide the desperation within you, you pretend everything's okay, you act like you have it all together. 
Far too many people take their moment of desperation and their opportunity for great growth and they sacrifice it on the altar of religion. And so they come to church and they act like everything's okay. I don't have any problems. My marriage is fine. My kids are fine. Everything's fine. I'm not desperate. I'm not broken. And what happens, it permeates into a culture of other people who begin to do the same thing. And we dress ourselves up and we put on these external uh, cloaks to hide what's going on inside. And you know what that is? That's a bunch of prideful legalism that's built on a foundation of works. And here's why. Because it, it at its core, there's a belief that says God is going to bless those who act right. So I'm going to seem like I don't struggle. You see, there's this subtle misunderstanding about God that derails our faith when we say, when we hide the fact that we're struggling. The person who pretends that they have it all together negates their need for grace. You see, why would you need grace if you have it all together? And here's what happens. There are men and women in this room this morning, undoubtedly that God is speaking to you this morning. You are spending all of your energy on hiding the secret sin in your life. You devote time and time and time and time to hiding what is against God in your life that no one knows about. And so all your energy is devoted to that. And what it does, it keeps your focus off the cross. Because as long as you're focused on your sin, there's no grace in your sin. And you don't see the glory of the cross and what God has done. And so in a a moment of desperation, beware of the temptation to be religious. Here's what Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So shall he not hear. In other words, once you choose the road of religion and pride and arrogance, then God doesn't hear. God doesn't hear. Because you you talk to him and speak to him from a from a heart of legalism, a heart that's of that has no need for grace, and God doesn't hear. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that the Lord is far from the prideful; He's far from them. So we're religious. The second thing we might do is be angry. I would say less common, but definitely prevalent, especially in our society. That when we find ourselves, when God seems silent, when our circumstances don't add up to the way we think they ought to be, we just get mad and we throw our fist up at God. And we harden our heart and we decide that that's just the way God's going to be and fine. And we're just angry and bitter and hard hearted. And then what we do is we either stop coming to church or we come to church and make everyone else around us miserable because we're just bitter. We're unhappy. And here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, here's the important thing to understand about that statement. To regard iniquity in one's heart is not what you think. It doesn't mean that that for God to hear you, you have to be perfect. To regard iniquity means to cherish sin. 
What the psalmist is saying is that the angry person is cherishing their sin. They're cherishing their anger. They're choosing to remain angry because God's doing things they don't understand and they don't like. And so they're angry about that. And rather than deal with those things before a holy and a just God just decided you're going to cherish your sin. And here's what you're doing. Whenever you pray from a bitter, angry heart, you're asking God to bless you in your anger. And that is never going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so then God seems silent. Well, yeah. But what if we chose not to be religious? What if we chose not to be angry? What if we chose to be honest? What if we came before the Lord this morning in honesty and said, God, you're doing things I don't understand. God, I'm seeing things I don't get. God, there are things pressing on me that make me feel distant and abandoned. And I need to, I need your help. I need you to, to speak to me. I need you to meet me. I need you to help me. I feel a little overwhelmed. I need a, I need a life raft here, God. Help me out. What if we came before the Lord like the psalmist does in Psalm 22? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. You know why? Because when the cry of a righteous heart that says, God, Habakkuk is coming before the Lord and he's saying, God, what's going on? How long are you going to ignore me? And God doesn't smite him. God doesn't kill him. You see, God is recording this in, the, in Scripture for us to be able to see the reality of life. That you know what? God has given us His Word and it's for you today where you are right now. That's what it's for. He wants you to see that people were frustrated in Scripture. People didn't get it. People looked around and they were bewildered. Just like we are today. I mean, come on. We know there's not a person in this room that's got it all together. I certainly don't. But boy, we put on a show. We put on a show. So look at what happens. The Lord replies to Habakkuk in verse 5. And the Lord responds to his plea and says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it were told you. He says, you look around at the nations. That's interesting to me. The problems with the people of God. But he says, you look around the nations. Look around the world. I'm working. Now, I'm going to tell you the answer to your question, but you're not going to get it. But I'm going to tell you anyway, even though you're not going to get it. So God says, even if it were told to you, but here we go anyway, I'm going to tell you. Now, isn't that, isn't that kind of what happens every time we, our lives intersect with Scripture? Every time we come in, the, in, the con, in, in contact with God's Word, we, we have to press the way things seem to us into and around the way God says that they are. And we've got to reconcile all that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'll tell you. But you're not going to get it in verse 6. He says, for indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, a bitter and a hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwellings that are not their own. So these Babylonians, they're going to go on to defeat Assyria in 605. I mean, man, they're going to come across the nations and they're going to wipe them out. And you read history and you watch what happens here and you see that God is about to unleash 
fury like the world has never seen. And there's Habakkuk. Imagine what he's thinking. He comes to God. God, how long until you hear me? God, you let me see all these things. Why don't you answer me? God says, all right, I'll answer you, but you're not going to get it. Here's what's going to happen. I'm raising up a people right now. They're so terrible, you can't imagine how horrible they are. What? That's your answer? I mean, verses 7 through 11. That's that's some wonderful uh, story time reading for your little kids before they go to bed. I mean, you want to you want to give them night terrors? Just read those verses to them. God's just breaking down. Here's here's who they are. Here's what they're going to do. And you, the first thing you want to say is, "Well, wait a minute, God. The, you, these are these are this is a pagan nation. This is a pagan people. I'm talking about I'm talking about your people. I'm talking about us." Yeah, Proverbs 21. The Bible says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He's in control of what's going on. You, you look around the world, you look at the nations, don't be bewildered and don't be astonished and don't be... Listen, they, it, you may not understand, but yet clearly God is in control. Romans 13 The Bible says there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by or ordained by God. So how is Habakkuk going to respond? Well, look at verse 12. There he is thinking to himself, well, I don't even know what to say to that. Obviously, he cares about these people. Obviously, he's carried this burden for a long time. Obviously, this situation means everything to him. Then he hears the response of what terrible things are ahead. And he doesn't say, well, it's a good thing that I'm such a great guy. It's a good thing I'm not going to face all that. Or does he say, well, fine, if you're going to do that, I'm out of here. No. What does he say? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? I want you to notice that Habakkuk, in the midst of his unbearable circumstances, walking away from God is not an option for him. It's not an option. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I, I relate. See, I know to whom I belong. I know who's called me, and I know what He's called me to do. And I don't have any say-so in that, and I don't have any choice in that. And so quitting is not an option. It's not an option. For me, and it's not an option for you. But boy, we don't see that today, do we? How many times? Hey, where's so-and-so? Oh, I don't know. We go track them down. What's going on? Oh, you know, I don't know. We just... I mean, we say things like, we, we just fell out of church. What? You just fell out of church? It's not a tree. Well, what does that even mean? Yeah, I don't know. We're just kind of, oh, okay. 
See, when God seems distant, here's what Habakkuk teaches us. And life doesn't make sense. You focus on what you know, not on what you don't understand. That's what verses 12 and 13 teach us. Habakkuk zeroes in on on what he knows. Because he does not understand what God just said. But he knows certain things about God. And that's what he says. Oh, my God, the Holy One, the rock. See, he responds with what, and that's the, it's the issue is, is, is focus. Remember, God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 that here you, I know you're old. I know your wife's old. I know you're both old, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a, a son and your, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. Okay. Really? I'm not sure. That's ridiculous. And then time goes on and it's not tomorrow, the next day. Ten years later, they have the same conversation. Nothing's really happened. Twenty-five years later, a son's born. I mean, what's going on for 25 years? God, how hard is it? I mean, you're going to do it anyway. Why wait 25 years? Romans 4, the Apostle Paul says of Abraham, who contrary to hope and hope believed, So that he became the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, the Bible says, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, or the deadness of Sarah's womb. But what did he do? He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that that what he was promised, he was also able to perform. He focused on what he knew about God and he not on what he didn't understand. He said, I don't understand why God's waiting. I don't understand what God's talking about, but I know he can do it. See, that's the message for us today. And you say to yourself, but God seems so distant to me. And you know, today we're so far from the faith of Abraham. We're so immature in our ways. I mean, we we come to worship. We think it's about us. We, we gripe and complain about things that we want, we need. I mean, come on. Let's play a little game. In the midst of all the struggles and trials that we're facing, how many letters do you think I've gotten in the last year that said, Pastor, our nation is in trouble. The church is in trouble. Maybe you should preach longer. Zero would be the correct guess. How many of you think I've gotten? Oh, so long. So long. Things are so bad. But just, can't you just shorten it up? Study less, man. Come on. Take up golf. And you say, well, I'm not Abraham. Well, that's true. You're not Abraham. But Abraham was just a man just like you, just like me. You know, when a five-year-old wants a toy in a grocery store, Isn't it amazing how Satan prompts the grocery stores to put toys? Why are toys even in there? (laughs) So you're trying to buy groceries and your five-year-old wants a toy. And so there they're standing in front of the toy and you say, no, son, you, you you can't have a toy. 
and they begin to scream and they begin to fuss and they begin to fret. And here's why. The frustration of a five-year-old is that I know that my parents have the capacity to purchase this toy. See, I know that in their wallet, they've got some stuff and they give it to the lady and I get the toy. And they know that that works. And so they know that you could do it, but you won't. So they scream. They don't. Have you ever seen a kid mad because you wouldn't buy a toy, but was whispering? I just want you to buy this toy. (laughs) No, no, they're screaming because they don't think you're listening because they know you can. Habakkuk is screaming because he doesn't think God's listening, but he knows God can. And so there that five-year-old is screaming and ran and raving on the floor. And here's what you don't ever see and what you never will see. You won't see mom or dad get down on the floor in the middle of wind dixie and say, Now, son, here's the deal. One day... You're going to be in charge of leading an entire family. You're going to get married and have children. And you're going to be the spiritual leader of the home. And what you need to learn today is that the Bible says that a man who doesn't have self-control is like a city with broken down walls. And so you need to understand that, little Johnny. No, you don't say that. You know why? Because Johnny can't get that. So you just say, suck it up or I'm fixing to unbuckle my belt. And that's when they snap to it. What did God say to Habakkuk? I'm going to tell you, but you don't understand. Because you're like a five-year-old. You think you know what you need. You think you know what you want, but you don't have a clue. You're five. And furthermore, who in here wants to serve a God that you can comprehend and understand? In other words, if he's holding the universe in the palm of his hand, and I can't figure out calculus, do I want to know everything he knows? I mean, is that possible? No. I mean, come on. He speaks every language on the planet. He made them up. He knows everything. And for us to think that somehow he owes us so that we can understand what he knows, we don't want that God. We wouldn't serve that God for a second. But when it comes to our toy in the middle of Winn-Dixie, we want it now. And God's saying, no, what you don't understand is that I'm your father and I know what's best for you. And you know what a five-year-old knows? That when mom begins to walk away, when dad begins to walk out that store, a five-year-old knows no matter how mad they are. They're going home with mom and dad. They're not staying in that store. They know that their mom and dad, even though won't buy them that toy, that's their mom and dad. That's who loves them. That's who protects them. That's who provides for them. Habakkuk realizes this is my father. And he can do it. He can reach into his pocket. And he can fix all my problems right now. But he doesn't. I don't understand why. But he's my God. He's my father. And he's good. He's good. So listen, church. Listen. The prophet is calling out to us to say, I know you don't understand. I know. 
Man, I just beg God, beg God, beg God. So many times, God, won't you hear me? Lord, why don't you just do this? Just help me, Lord. But you know what? Even when I don't understand, He's my Father. He's my Father and He loves me. And He's good. And He's preparing me for a future somehow that today I can't understand or see. But I trust Him. I trust Him. I'm going to put my toy down. I'm going to walk in relationship with my dad. You stand and bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the prophet, Lord, and how he speaks to our heart. God, I pray that in this moment, Lord God, I don't know what people in this room need to say to you. But, Father, I pray that they'll say it. I pray that the moms and the dads, the husbands and the wives, the teenagers in this room who don't understand, who are frustrated by the circumstances and situations in their life would cry out to you, would not puff up in pride and religion, would not shake their fist in anger and bitterness. But Lord, in honesty and in humility, would come to you as a good and loving Heavenly Father who is so infinitely above us that all your ways are so perfect and wonderful that we can't even comprehend. But God, we're going to come out to you today and cry, Lord, to you and say, God, will you hear my prayer? How long, Lord? How long? But I'm going to walk with you, Dad. You're, you're my God. You're the Holy One. You are my rock. And so if there's something in my life, Lord, I know that you are sovereign and I know that you are good. And so, Father, if I don't understand it, Lord, I lay my life as a living sacrifice on the altar of your grace. And I say, God, I need your grace today to walk in relationship with you because I don't have it all together. I need grace every day to look at the cross and realize that when my life is suffering and I'm hurting, that it's not you punishing me because the cross declares that all of your wrath has been satisfied against me. That, Lord, if I'm your son or I'm your daughter, that the only things that happen to me are for my good and for your glory. There's no, there's no punishment. All that's been handled at the cross. Lord, I'm in right relationship with you. So in the midst of my suffering, it's your grace that saved me and it's your grace that's going to carry us through, Lord, until that day that we're ushered into perfection. So, Father, first and foremost today, may we be honest with you. May every person in this room that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior be honest with you today. and Say, I need a Savior today. Father, will you save them today? Give them the boldness and the courage to come to the wonderful, wonderful saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for all those here today who know you, may we be honest before your table and realize your command that we dare not come to your table with an unprepared heart, with a heart that has sin unconfessed, and that we'll come before you now and say, 
Lord, you know our shortcomings. You know the things that I'm struggling with and I bring them before you and I repent. I repent. Oh, Father, meet us here in this time, God. Be glorified. Do what only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. You come.